Amen and good morning. That was good worship. Let's continue as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. We are in Philippians 3 today. In fact, we've been doing a whole sermon through the book of Philippians. And I want to begin in chapter 3, verse 12. That's Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. And I want to remind you, you may have known this already, that when uh, these letters first were given to the early Christians, what history teaches us is that at that time, someone would stand in the crowd and just read a chunk of the letter, or maybe the whole letter itself. And this person would actually be taking his cues from how they read letters at that time in society. There would be a lector of sorts, somebody who would read it, but he would also have a dramatic feel. He would be a professional reader almost, or at least he was taking his cues from this professional reader. So this guy would stand up and he would just read long chunks, and the people were used to hearing the text orally and responding to it. I'm not going to act this out today. I'm not going to read it professionally, but I did want to just go ahead and read uh, several verses here, about 10 verses. I'm going to read from verse 12 in Philippians 3 down to 21, and then we'll pray together. So let's just read Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Verse 15. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if it, in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. 17. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their chain, with minds set on earthly things. Verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Let's pray together. Father, we do pray as we sang today that we would live only for Christ above all things. And as we receive your word today, I pray that your spirit pushes us to press on towards maturity in Christ. Oh God, may we long for the goal the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And may we be transformed and changed by the passage and your work in us by your Spirit. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, there's a lot of ways to drink the sweet nectar from this chapter this morning, but I thought since the TCC, we're always striving to be culturally relevant, I would borrow an approach from the mainstream media. 
I'm sure you're aware, maybe you're not, but three weeks ago, after 33 years, TV World said goodbye to David Letterman, famous night show host. And uh, this morning, as a bit of an homage, we're going to top 10 this passage, all right? Top 10 this passage. If you are an outliner, you'd like to take notes, here is the title of your outline. Top 10 ways to press on toward maturity in Christ. Let's look at this passage and see the top 10 ways. <laughs> it will not be funny. Byron wants humor and I'm not very humorous. <laughs> top 10 ways to press on toward maturity in Christ. And the thrust of this passage as you're reading it is actually that God would have us ever leaning on the Holy Spirit by gospel power to keep pushing forward. He repeats his language over and over. Let's press on. Let's go together and let's push forward. It's almost like a really good athletics coach. Maybe your high school football coach or whatever would always say, come on, keep going. Don't quit. Don't quit. This is the, the tone of this passage. And that's our challenge today is to see how we can press on toward maturity in Christ. So here's 10 ways. Number 10, know that you have not arrived. Know that you have not arrived. I get that from verses 12 and 13. But before we go there, I want to look back at what Pastor Sean preached last week. Flip way back to verse 8, if you would, or scan up in, the, in your Bible. Because we have to know what he's talking about before we get to what he's talking about today. Read with me in verse 8 through 11. This is what Paul had written previously. He said, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So he creates a couple of categories. Everything good in his life that he's tried to do and then Jesus. And he says, I count everything else as gone. It's a loss. And over here, I count Jesus worthy of more. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith so that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So Paul writes here of his willingness to drop all earthly things in order to gain Christ. And in doing so, he will gain a couple of things. He will become like Jesus in his death. And he will attain to the resurrection from the dead. So that's what he was talking about in the previous writing. But now, as he's saying, I'm going to become like Jesus. And I'm going to attain from the resurrection of the dead. That's going to be mine. He wants to make sure that people know that he isn't saying he's already done this. He hasn't ha already arrived at some omega level of spirituality where he's the ultimate boss of all spiritualness. That's not what he's trying to say. He's trying to say, I haven't arrived yet. That's why we read in verse 12 and 13 these words. He says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect. And later on in 13, he says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. So he's saying, I'm striving after these things with all my might, but I know that even I, Apostle Paul, haven't arrived yet. When he'd written earlier to the Corinthian church, they mistook some of these things as bragging 
and he wants to make sure in humility that he shares with everyone he hasn't arrived. Another way to say this is to pursue Christ is to pursue humility. If we are to pursue Christ, we must be pursuing humility. St. Augustine went so far as to say that humility is the soil from which all other spiritual fruits grow. In particular, he said this, quote, he said, humility is the foundation of all other virtues. Hence, in the soul in which this virtue does not exist, there cannot be any other virtue except in mere appearance. Right? So, if you don't have humility, you have nothing. I got a couple of uh, encouraging emails this week from the brothers, and they were really good. And I was, my heart was lifted up, and I praise God for them. And what Augustine would say is if those are done without humility, if they're done somehow to make, you know, make yourself look good, I'll shoot you a spiritual email, and I'll, I'll look like I'm super spiritual. He said that if that's done without humility, it's empty. It's only vain appearances. J.I. Packer points out, when looking at the life of Paul, he, seems that Paul, he says that Paul seems to increase in his humility as he grows older. For instance, in AD 59, when Paul was living in the early 80s, and in 59, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, he wrote, I am the least of the apostles, right? That's what we have in 59, he wrote. Four years later, in 63, in Ephesians 3, Paul writes, I am the least of the saints. He's gone from least of the apostles. Now he says, I'm actually the least of the saints. And a year later, as he writes in 1 Timothy 1, Paul says, I'm actually the foremost of all sinners. See how Paul's actually growing downward in his humility? And at the same time, he's actually rising in his ability to praise Jesus for his greatness. So as he's going downward, so to speak, in his humility, it lifts Christ up as the ultimate object of his praise. And the question for us is, how do, we, how do we do that? How do we grow in our own humility, especially in such a way that lets us gaze on the greatness of Jesus Christ? Well, one way to grow in humility is to simply give recognition to a classmate or a co-worker or a fellow ministry worker instead of trying to take that recognition for yourself. Actually verbally affirm and give recognition to others in your life. But don't stop there because any secularist could do that, right? As you're doing that, if you want to pursue humility in Christ, allow these verbal affirmations of others to condition your own heart to be recognizing Jesus for your spiritual successes instead of yourself. <clears throat> See, let your words prime your heart. In my words, I'm recognizing this person, not myself. In my heart, I'm always recognizing Christ instead of myself in my own spiritual life. Meditate just like Paul. That even though you, like Paul, were the foremost of sinners, God was pleased to send His Son, Jesus, to pay the payment of death that you had earned for yourself. Actually, this payment concept can be really helpful when you're pursuing uh, humility because payments are everywhere in our life today, right? We have to pay for so many things, groceries, school supplies, mortgages, insurance, electricity. Everything in our life seems costs money. Device apps, 
whatever we want. We have to pay for it. Even had to pay for a famous sermon outline to download off the internet so I could preach it to you today. <clears throat> a couple months ago, I didn't have to pay for that. I was joking. <laughs> Robbie's thinking, I've heard you preach. I know this isn't a famous sermon. <laughs> but why, why are there so many payments in our life? Think about it. Why do we have to pay for everything? Could it be that as you're paying for your coffee, as you go to pay for your gas today, God wants you to reflect on how someone has made a great payment on your behalf, right? See, the Bible teaches us that we are spiritually broke, that each rebellious thing that we do actually counts as a debt to God, and we actually owe Him something for our rebellion, for our personal offenses against Him. And what do we do when we realize that, oh, I've offended God? For most of us, what we try to do is we say, oh, I'm going to pay you back, God, right? We reach into our own pockets and we pull out a currency of self-righteousness and we say, here, God, take this counterfeit currency, right? And we try to pay God back. But what happens? That's even more offensive to God. That's a crime in and of itself. And so you see how the spiral works. We go down and down and down till finally we receive this invoice in the mail from God that says, payment due perfect life. We get that and we're like, oh, I can't live a perfect life. What can I do? And that's where humility starts to form, right? When you can see that you have nothing to offer God because of your imperfection and you needed Christ to come and give his perfect life to your account on your behalf so that you could even stand before God's holiness, humility starts to develop in your own heart. And these are the mental processes we need to be going through when I pull up the gas station and I make a payment. You don't have to say it all out loud. You look like a weirdo. But you can be thinking, payment. Oh, yes, I owed a payment to God. And just like in the physical world, I don't know if you've ever been there, but I have. If you've ever been there in the physical world where you can't pay your debts back, you have a creditor calling you, you owe somebody some money and you're not able to pay it back, that's humbling, isn't it? If you can mentally go there before God to where you're before God and you say, I, I can't pay this debt back. I can't. I need Jesus. That's where humility truly starts. And like Paul, we're then able to take our humility and see Christ as big in it. And that's going to be our hope. So let's seek our own humility this week by recognizing others for what they've done, but also meditating on every payment that we make so that we can recognize the payment that Christ has made on our behalf. Number nine, they won't all be that long. <laughs> that was a long one. Number nine, top ten ways to press on towards maturity in Christ. Number nine, know that you are owned by Christ. Know that you are owned by Christ. I get this from verse 12, where we read together, and not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own, right? Paul gives a clear reason why he can continue towards maturity in Christ. Did you catch what the reason was? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. That allows me to press on towards maturity in Christ. That's beautiful, isn't it? I can only continue because Christ has made me his own. 
Paul's confidence is rooted not in his own piety or accomplishments, but instead in Christ's ownership of Paul. When Paul is tempted towards depression or he yearns to give up and he wants to quit, wallow in apathy, condemn his own past failures, what he looks towards is Christ's ownership of him. For Paul, this was crystallized in about a six-mile trek that he made down a dusty road from where he was working in Jerusalem to Damascus. And on that road, he was knocked to the ground by the radiance of the glory of someone who just introduced himself as, I am Jesus. Paul could look back to his own conversion and say, Christ owns me. Therefore, I can press on towards maturity. Jesus himself boldly declared in the gospel, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. How do my own know me? Well, they know that I possess them. I'm not going to leave them. Paul's remembrance of how Christ grasped his soul propels him forward. This week in my home, we had a mysterious appearance of a scandalous sort. You know, those letters that you put on refrigerator magnets, all the different letters you can use. Well, I use them to teach my uh, daughter Shiloh how to read. She's learning how to read. And this week, you know, we had a lot of people in our house and I uh, was passing by the refrigerator and there someone had arranged the letters into the granddaddy of all wordy dirts. Right? This is the one that rhymes with Mickey friend Donald's last name. And here it is on my fridge. Right? And so, and apparently there had been a spelling bee of sorts as it arrived there. So I'm shocked by this and we as a family, we have to talk it through. Things, challenges happen as a family and we have to talk it through. There's a couple of adults and seven kids. So we get together and we talk about this. But if I was tempted towards anger or disappointment because of the incident, I never once communicated, I hope, I never once communicated that somebody here messed up and you're out of the family, right? You're not a part of us anymore. I disown you. That's not the way family works. That's not the way love works. And that's not the way Jesus works. When we fail him, he doesn't look at us. He's got a covenant with us. He doesn't look at us and say, I no longer own you. And Paul knew this. So one step towards our maturity in Christ is to be able to walk around with him and stop undermining the glory of his forgiveness with your own Pathetic self-condemnation, right? That's what we do when we fail Christ. We run like Eve to the forest and try to hide in our own self-condemnation. When Jesus is saying, I'm here. I own you. I paid for that already. I made the payments. I am here. And we can have peace because Christ owns him. That will free you up to keep pressing on instead of spinning your wheels thinking about your own failures, you can keep pressing on. And that's what Paul knew, and that's what he had mastered. Number eight. Remember, top ten ways to press on towards maturity in Christ. Number eight. Forget about it. Forget about it. Or if you're an Italian mobster, forget about it, right? Hope I didn't offend any Italian mobsters right there. <laughs> that would be bad, wouldn't it? <laughs> 
<laughs> might not make it home. <laughs> but I have more than a word on my refrigerator, horse's head or something. Forget about it. Verse 13 is where I see this. Forget about it. Paul says this. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, one thing I do, forgetting about what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. And get the picture. He's using a sports metaphor here. I, I don't know if you've ever seen this before, but uh, my, my children are doing swimming lessons this summer, and they're doing a great job of it. And um, I'm able to be there when they're doing their lessons. And part of what you do is you work on your form when you're doing swimming lessons. At the end of each lesson, sometimes we'll have races where everybody lines up and they race. And what they're supposed to be working on is staying tall and looking down and stretching out, all that stuff. Well, sometimes I will go to the bottom of the pool so that I can look up at them as they swim so that I can see if they're using the correct form and all that, right? Well, this week I did it, and when I go down, and you know, I say start, and then I go down and I look up, and you know, inevitably, during a race, what usually happens to all of us is instead of doing this, we do what? We do, we start looking, <gasps> we start looking at the other people we're racing again, and you can tell that it visibly slows you down. Maybe you've seen a kid, a little kid in a 50-yard dash, right? And he's running, and as soon as he gets going, he looks this way to see who he's beating, and he starts swerving that way and he slows down. That's the kind of thing that Paul says. If we're always looking behind, we're going to get off course and we're not going to be able to strive forward and press on in Christian maturity. Paul knows that the Christian life works this way. His counsel is to not look back and rely on your past successes, failures for that matter, but specifically here, I think he's talking about your past successes because if you rely on your past successes, what that promotes now is self-satisfaction, promotes a loss of effort, right? For that matter, he said, just, just forget about those and strive forward. And here's an example. Some of us, when we were about 18 through 22, we had a really fresh season with God in Christ. And college wasn't all bells and whistles, but for a lot of people, the college season was where, when you had a lot of community. You had people with your interest in your life stage of your gender who were always around you. And it was easy to spend a night, uh, hours talking in the parking lot about your problems, or you could discuss dating over waffles at late night. It was easy to find this intimate community. But then you fast forward 5, 10, 15 years, and now you have a lot of kids or really long days or the start of a career and community is a lot harder to find, right? Well, some of us, I've noticed, are tempted to look back and say, man, community was great back then. And man, I don't have it now. That, that's a bummer, but I'll never be able to get how great it was then. And Paul is saying, if you spend all your time looking back at that, you're going to miss the opportunity that he's given you now. If you're trying to replace the people that he has ordained to put in your life with those people in the past, it's not going to work. Paul is saying, look at what you have now. Take that and move forward, striving forward, pressing on, Paul says. So we can, in that sense, forget about it. Number seven. Number seven, visualize the prize. I get that from verse 14. Visualize the prize. Instead of looking behind, we're told to thrust our hearts forward to a prize in verse 14. I press on 
towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Look at the wording here. Prize of the upward call. Prize of the upward call. One of the 500 things I like about working with Pastor Byron is he's really good at seeing Old Testament connections in the New Testament. And what's happening here is Paul is using Old Testament language of calling. Language that we find in Isaiah 48.12, Isaiah 51.2, where God is calling Abraham and a people to be himself, to be with himself. So he's calling a group of folks to himself, and that's what he's talking about in calling. So here in Philippians, Paul is responding to his call from God into God's kingdom, and most importantly, into fellowship with God's king, Jesus Christ. So he's responding to this call. It's as if if Paul's prize here was an Olympic medal, the strap that went around it would be all of the blessings of heaven, you know, the colorful strap that comes on those medals. But the gold medallion would be Christ. The real part of the prize is Jesus himself. And that's what Paul says every day. We need to be pressing on towards the prize, towards meeting Jesus. And what does that look like, though, practically well, here's one way to do it. As you're living your day, as you're mothering or as you're working or what have you, ask the question, how will this decision today impact the conversation I'm going to have when I see Jesus, right? How will this idea, this motivation, how am I going to share that with Christ when I actually meet him? That's what Paul is talking about. You need to realize you're actually going to meet Christ and he's your prize. And we can live each day in, in view of that, right? So that's a good question to ask. Number six, top ten ways to press on towards maturity in Christ. Follow a faithful follower. Follow a faithful follower. Verse 17, I see that. Follow a faithful follower. This is probably the most straight po- straightforward of all his points here in verse 17 brothers join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us paul is big on learning by watching others okay and that's what he's advocating here he says uh he's humble at the same time he says you got some things you can learn from me and from others watch them if you want to press on in your maturity in christ i saw a uh, scientific study that was done this week by the National Science Foundation at the University of Washington, and they were studying somatotrophic brain waves. Okay, since I know that uh, I don't really know what that is, I'm going to try to explain it anyway. Uh, that is somatotrophic brain mapping, and they, here's the idea: uh, they're trying to figure out where uh, the place in your brain is that connects to each nerve ending on your body. So, for an adult, they would put a helmet on you with all kinds of sensors in your brain. And then they would say, grab the iPhone. And as you grab the iPhone, a sensor would light up that connects to your hand. It's your hand signal, right? So they can map out which part of the brain actually connects to your foot. If I'm going to put my foot on a pedal, when I went to do that, the pedal thing in my sensor would light up. Well, they were doing this on kids for the first time, trying to figure out how kids learn to learn, how they they learn things. And so they got these baby-sized, little bitty infant baby-sized helmets, and they put them on the kids, and the kid would sit right here, and the adult would sit over here with no helmet on, right? And so the kid would be here learning, watching the adult. And what they found was when the adult reached for the toy, 
the kid's hand sensor would, all, would go off. Even though the kid's not reaching, the hand sensor part of his brain would go off. Phenomenal. If the, kid, if the adult was to reach for a pedal down there low with his foot, the kid would sit here and go, ah! But the sensor would go off for his foot. They use that to say we're hardwired to learn by imitation. That's the way we were created. In our basic learning functions, we are wired to learn by watching others. And so Paul said, we need to be watching each other in humility to learn how to press on towards maturity in Jesus Christ. I do this secretly sometimes. We have pastor's meetings and I'm watching the pastor's. Pastor Sean is really gifted at gospel-centered networking. He connects well with so many other believers and they can go places together for the kingdom. And I'm trying to grow in that. So I'm watching that. Pastor Byron, like I said, is really good at making these scriptural connections. So I'm learning from him. Pastor Hunter is a really big Cowboys fan. So I'm learning that from him. <laughs> and, and, don't learn that. And he's great at reading. He's a, he's a student of the word. And he's always reading another book here and there. And I'm learning to be a disciplined reader from him. We can all learn things from people in our lives. And Paul said, this is how you mature in Christ. Follow a faithful follower. Number five, know the enemy in you. Know the enemy inside of you. I get that from verse 18, and we'll get there in a minute. But it was the Greek philosopher called Pythagoras, who Paul may have even known his work, but this Pythagoras guy actually once wrote, this cool quote, no one is free who has not obtained the empire of himself. No one is ever free who has not obtained the empire of himself. And Paul knows the evils we are all capable of. And he warns us by saying, look at others who have fallen. Look at others who are doing evil. Because if it's not by God's grace, you're going to follow them in that. You're going to go there. Verse 18, he says, for many of whom I have often told you, and I now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in the shame. Their minds set on earthly things. We're warned here against a life that is chiefly motivated by worldly desires that are in opposition to God. That's what he means by counseling us not to, like the enemies of the cross, set our minds on earthly things. Now, we have to be careful here. Earthly things doesn't just mean practical stuff like uh, doing the dishes or mowing the grass. That's not what he means by earthly things uh, as opposed to reading the Bible or something like that. Uh, it uh, gives us a hint at what he means here when he uses that phrase, their God is their belly. When he says earthly thing, he's talking about the thing that will steal your heart. Things in which you begin to worship something, in this case, food, even more than you worship Christ. Things that will kick Christ off the throne and be exalted. He uses the same phrase in Colossians 3, 5, where Paul says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly inside of you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, all that's idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. There's that destruction talk. In these you too once walked. You're not that person anymore, but that's what you once walked in when you were living in them. Verse 8, but now you must put them all away. If you're going to mature and press on and crack, put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. Those are the earthly things. And you've got to put those away. We call that sin fighting. 
here at TCC or idol bashing or something of that nature. And it should be a focused part of your maturity in Christ. And you say, well, I'm new to that. I don't know what you mean by sin fighting. How might I start? Well, here's one way. First, you've got to understand the nature of your sin. It's kind of like a, a baby. Have you ever been with a baby who's trying to, uh, a toddler trying to play peekaboo? If you ever play peekaboo with a toddler, what they'll try to do is hide behind something. They'll be like, peekaboo, peekaboo. And they're the, they're the only ones who think they're actually hiding. Their whole big baby body is still sticking out, right? But they think they're hiding. Sin works that way. Everyone can see it but you. You're, you're thinking you're hiding it, but you're not. Sin is exposed by the looks of other people. So if you want to grow in your own sin fighting, what you have to do is ask others into your life. You can do that in a lot of ways here at TCC. We have O2 group. We have community group. And you can just start with your words. You can say, hey, friend, I trust you. Have you ever heard me speak either in tone or content in a way that's a concern to you? You know, that's a good question to ask someone. Uh, and that allows someone to say, well, when I hear you speak about the times when your husband uh, fails to clean up his mess in the garage, you seem a little stressed out, right? You've invited someone in, you've, and now they're commenting. And from that point, you can try to see what's under the stress, right? What's under their concern for you? And you could find an idol of control. Maybe you have an idol of every single thing has to be in your certain spot in the garage. And that's something you can start to deal with. That control is actually the sin that you're trying to fight. So Paul admonishes us to do this. Eventually, we will grow in trusting God's great um, ordination of all things, his control of all things, and that will be progress in our faith. Top 10 ways to press on towards maturity in Christ. Number four, remember your passport is issued from heaven. Number four, Remember, your passport is issued from heaven. If you don't travel, you might forget or you might not know what a passport is used for, but it's good for a couple of things. One, when you travel somewhere, you'll get a visa stuck in your passport, and that visa will allow you to be legally in another country. But more foundationally, what a passport does is when you open it, it screams out to everybody what country you are a citizen of. Your, your citizenship. So mine will say USA and everybody when I travel. So when I go to China and someone gets my passport, they'll know that I'm a foreigner. They'll know that I'm an alien. They'll know I'm a stranger. They'll know I'm just passing through, right? My true home is elsewhere. And here in verse 20, Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. Our passport was issued from heaven. As one commentator aptly said, this fallen earthly realm is not the sum of our existence. We need to receive that. This fallen earthly realm is not the sum of our existence. Last week, Pastor Sean talked about uh, American Pharaoh, the racehorse, uh, the one who won the Triple Crown. I think I have a picture of him there. That's not the racehorse, but maybe we'll get a racehorse picture up here. Well, look at this guy. Is there, is there any doubt that he won the triple crown? He's ripped those muscles on him. Now, now, I want you to contrast this dude with the scene you see at the state fair. Oftentimes, they have a pony ride scene. 
You ever seen that? Yeah, they get little ponies or decrepit old horses or maybe they'll sneak a llama in there. And what they'll do is they'll tie them around a pole and they'll go slowly around it and the little kids can ride on it. Now imagine what would happen that muscular American Pharaoh, if we were to sneak him in to this event, <laughs> he would strut in there and be like, what's up, y'all? Because that's how he talked. But he'd be so big and he would overwhelm it and all the kids would say, I want that one, right? I want to ride that one. It's huge. That's the picture Paul is saying. We are not made for the pony carousel of this world. We are made to run on a bigger better, grander track of heaven and eternity. And we need to realize that. That's what we are designed for as creation of Christ himself. Paul said, remember, this is who you are. And this should root out some of the hopelessness we have, right? Especially all of us who consider ourselves failures sometimes, right? If, if you're here and you consider yourself that you failed sometimes, like, like, for instance, if you're pursuing humility and you're pursuing neighbor love with all your heart and it turns out your career path isn't going that well, you need to remember that heaven's ladder is meant to propel you up to success in God's realm, not this realm, right? When you're taking these steps of humility and neighbor love, that ladder is set not to reach in this world, but to reach up in heaven, don't be discouraged by that. If it, seems, if it seems to you like returning kindness for evil is actually letting the person who hurts you off the hook, just be encouraged that kindness and humility and love towards one another is the currency of heaven, not of this world. You're paying it forward to your life with Christ. So take hope as you mature in Christ. And all these awkward cross-cultural challenges we have of living in this world, this foreign fallen kingdom, they'll one day be behind you when you present your passport to the ultimate customs agent, Jesus Christ himself. And he says, oh, yeah, you're one of mine. Come on in. I see you've been lost in another world, but now you're home. Paul says we should look forward to that. Number three, pine for your Savior. Verse 20, pine for your Savior. We don't use the word pine much anymore. I looked this week at one of those online dictionaries for teenagers. So you go on there and you look a word up. And for pine, the example it had was, if you're texting your ex-boyfriend 50 times a day, then you're pining for him. Right? <laughs> I thought that was funny. It means to long for someone, right? That's why in verse 20, Paul writes, we await a Savior the Lord Jesus Christ. In Titus 2, Paul says the same thing. Wait for our what? Blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. My mom lives out of state and she's learned how to text now. So that's cool. Texting with grandma. And her favorite texts are the ones where she receives snapshots of my kids or videos, right? She doesn't call them vids. She calls them videos. And when she receives them, She'll text me back and say, ah, oh, I missed them so much. I can't wait to see them in person. That's the same idea. If we are going to increase our longing, when she actually sees the picture, it increased her longing to see the grandkids in person. If we can get snapshots of Christ here in this world, it will increase our longing for him in 
the next world. How do we do that? Well, read the Gospels, for instance. Actually spend some time this week reading in the Gospels so you can get just a whiff of the aroma that awaits you one day in heaven. Grab good resources. I'm reading one right now. It's called Behold the King of Glory. Behold the King of Glory by Rush Ramsey. It takes you through the Gospels like in a story form for adults. And it's good if you like to read stories. Behold the King of Glory by Rush Ramsey. There's all kinds of resources that will get your mind to viewing Christ so that a little snapshot of His glory will make you want Him more. Number two. Number two way to press toward maturity in Christ. Hope in the transformer. Hope in the transformer. I was just a little fella in the 80s when these robot action figures came out called the Transformers. And I thought it was so cool when a semi-truck, which was cool enough, could actually turn into a fighting spaceman robot. Wow! I was blown away. And I think one reason is we were created to love redemptive change, right? We were created to love change in a redemptive direction. Verse 21 gets very specific about the change that will happen when Christ returns. Paul says, we will tra- he will transform, Jesus will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. And don't miss the contrast there, right? Between uh, the people here who are going to ha- get a transformed body and earlier in 18, he said people will be destroyed who do not trust and hope in Christ. If you are trusting and hoping in Christ, you will get a new body. What will it look like? He doesn't go into details here. Probably the preview and paradigm is in Jesus' resurrected body. If you look at that, you see that uh, Jesus as the great first transformer, he walked around in a physical way. He would eat. He still had visible wounds. Uh, he was touched. He wasn't like a ghost or anything like that. That's not what Paul is talking about. But yet, Jesus did some otherworldly things, right? Uh, he could pass through walls. Uh, he wasn't recognizable in appearance sometime. He could ascend to the sky. That'll be cool in our new transformed bodies. Now, Paul doesn't focus on the detail here because his point is that we can have hope that our bodies will be transformed. This is particularly helpful for those of us over 40 or who feel like it because at some point, you know, whether it's after the birth of your, after the second natural childbirth experience, maybe it's after your daughter spent unexpectedly a couple nights in the hospital, or maybe it's after you see your own parents die, or you see a famous athlete that you used to love as a kid, you see him 20 years later and his body's like, "Eh." at some point, wisdom says, these bodies are not going to live forever. They are decaying, right? And our best hope is going to be in a resurrection type of transformation that we see in Jesus. So it's okay to pursue our CrossFit training and our triathlons and our whole foods diet. That's fine. It's okay. But we cannot ultimately hope in these things. So I say let's push forward together, keep taking our shrimp oil, but still we're looking at Jesus as the ultimate transformer. And finally, number one way to press on towards maturity in Christ. From verse 21, glory in the true king's monarchy. Glory in the true king's monarchy. Start reading in verse 20. 
But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Our body's transformation will be a byproduct of Christ's subjection of everything in the cosmos to himself. Paul says it differently in Ephesians 1.10. All things will be united in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Like the calling language we talked about, this is Messiah talk from the Old Testament. Psalm 8.6, we read that the anointed one will be given dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Even more clear in Psalm 110.1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemy a footstool. A great thing about Jesus coming back is that he will subject all things to himself. No longer will he be a lowly, homeless, tortured rabbi, but he will return as the anointed king, the ruler of all the universe. And we should glory in that. How do we glory in the subjection of Christ? Well, it's hard because naturally I don't glory in being ruled by anyone. I don't know about you, but I don't like the idea. I'm American that way. I don't like to be ruled in any way in the physical atmosphere, the physical world. I live in this neighborhood and there's a school in the neighborhood. And that's okay. That means that there's a lot of kids walking in the mornings when people are going to work. A lot of kids walking to the school. And it also means because our neighborhood is on a major highway that people use our neighborhood as a cut through to skirt around some of the traffic. And so you got kids walking and people speeding through there to get to work. It's a big mess. And so what the town of Garner decided to do is to place a policeman right by the stop side, stop sign like 100 yards from my house. I saw this guy after he happened to pull somebody in our family over. And I thought, I'm, incredul I'm incredulous at this. I, ca I can't believe how dare they choose to police this law about this stop sign. Everybody rolls through it. Isn't there a better use of Garner's resources than putting a police car right by my house? That's the way my heart goes in most things. But a giant leap in our maturity can come when we honestly appreciate the reality that we are not king of our world. Whether we own up to it or not, we don't control the weather. We don't control the economy. We don't rule over the diseases our kids catch or don't catch. We don't rule over our spouses or the car that's traveling towards you on a two-lane highway. You don't control that car. And once the illusion of control is busted, we only have two options. You trust in glory and Christ's sovereignty or you shake your fist at it. Paul says, let's glory in Christ's control over all things. What does that mean? Well, to glory in his monarchy is to trust that he can repay your enemies better than you ever dreamed. To glory in his authority is to know he has given you today's circumstances for your ultimate eternal good. To glory in his kingdom means you go about loving and caring for your fellow subjects instead of trying to replace them with subjects of your choosing or making. To glory in his rule means you're quicker to ask, how does faith respond during this crisis than you are, why did this crisis happen to me in the first place? All of these are examples of moving forward in subjection to Christ's good rule. 
that we've had 10 points. I'm not going to go back over all of them. But I do want to end just with an exhortation that you would actually pray for one another this week, that we would press on towards maturity in Christ by picking maybe one or two of these things and pressing hard after it. And I'm going to pray that God would give us the power to do that. Let's pray. God, I do, I do pray that you would empower us by your Spirit to press forward on to maturity in Jesus Christ. It's hard. As Sean said earlier, this is not a willpower thing. This is not an unction thing that we pull ourselves into. Instead, God, this is a supernatural, Holy Spirit, gospel-driven thing. And I pray that you would ignite a passion for spiritual growth in all of us here based on what Christ has done for us in the gospel. And God, I pray this with all my heart. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.